Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in October of 2015. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. Herman Daly. Dr. Daly is a professor emeritus at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. He received his bachelor's degree from Rice University in Texas and his PhD from Vanderbilt. He is known chiefly for his time as a senior economist at the World Bank's Environment Department. He is the co-author of the Journal of Ecological Economics and has written innumerable journal articles throughout the decades. He is the author of several books, including Toward a Steady State Economy, Valuing the Earth, Ecological Economics and Sustainable Development, and many more. From the start, Dr. Daly has focused on sustainable development, ecological economics, and the role that the state plays within the economy. His work has been quite fruitful, as it has won him many awards, including Sweden's Honorary Right Livelihood Award, the Dutch Heineken Prize for Environmental Science, Norway's Sophie Award for Sustainable Development, and a Lifetime Achievement Award from America's National Council for Science and the Environment. Dr. Daly and the Henry George School discuss the expanding degrowth movement, how societies can develop without harming natural endowments, and how mainstream economic indicators could be rethought to include environmental impact. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Okay, Herman, thanks for, for joining us. Now, this is, My pleasure. Yeah, this interview is going to be a little unusual because you're following a, a, a great classical scholar named Mark Blythe, and we had a far-ranging interview which bumped up into the issues you and I are going to discuss. Uh, Mark Blythe is a Scottish economist at, at Brown, and he's written a powerful book on, called Austerity, and also he's written a book called Transformations, which is kind of the lineal descendant of Carl Pogliani. And we were discussing Greece, austerity, and all of the issues of, of economics, neoclassical, classical. And uh, I was trying to say, well, what's the solution here? Do you understand that the solution will probably be environmental limitations? And so I try to make the argument, Yes, we can't, it's, much of this is path dependent and, and driven by the economics and the property rights structures that we have, but the pressures will be so intolerable that something has to give. And he said, well, nothing will really give, we'll just muddle on and on. So we had an impasse here. So I knew I was gonna to talk to you. And uh, I, I think we could, we could pick it up there. I said to him, I asserted to him, I said, there's a, finite calculation that we can make now. I mean, and I think I'm drawing from your work where essentially if we double the GNP worldwide, given the, just keeping technology the way it is now, that our environment will, will, will become damaged to the point of no return. Your comments. Well, I think that will happen. He may well be right in the sense that uh, we're not going to do anything about it and that we'll be simply forced in a, in a kind of Malthusian way to deal with it after the fact, to pick up the pieces and, and try to put them back together. Uh, 
this is something that my students always raised with me. They would say, yes, well, Professor Daly, what you say is all very reasonable, but uh, nobody will ever accept it. Congress will never enact limits uh, to growth. And, uh, well, I, yeah, I don't have a very good answer except to say that, um, so, yeah. I mean, their implicit question was, why should we study this? And it's good to have some ideas on the shelf for reconstruction. Uh, you get serious after a crisis, and if there's some, some, something on the shelf already, that helps. So that may well be our state. Now, naturally, I hope we will be able to be a little bit more um, anticipatory and, and avoid some of the, and that's what I aim for. But I have to admit that, um, you know, it may not happen. All right, well, Herman, let me just say this. Of course, I'm not a nihilist here, and I, and I believe that, uh, that this can be headed off, and uh, as, a, as, a, as a Georgist, more, more of a neo-Georgist, let's say, I would argue that tax on nature and land, you know, as, a, as an ultimate tax on, on bads, environmental bads, even if you have a shadow price them into the, into the system, would go a long way to break the path dependency that the current structures have thrown us on. So in a way, I would argue that although I haven't got a closed-end solution and, and I certainly can't argue against humanity's lack of focus on this particular issue, that some pointed structural changes might, might at least change the paths that, that we're on. But I didn't intend, intend to debate George, George here. I wanted to debate Herm Daly's view of what the environmental issues are, I mean, in a way, the question sort of is, how do you envision a successful economy that's not growing? How do you envision a, a successful steady state? Uh, well, I think it's, it's helpful to start with a prior question. Uh, how do you envision a successful planet Earth that is not growing? Well, that's pretty easy because we already have one. Uh, the Earth is not growing in its physical dimensions. Lots of things are changing. There's evolution, there's birth, there's death, there's production, there's depreciation, uh, and there's technical change and so on and so on. But the earth is not growing. The economy is a physical subsystem of the earth. And if it keeps on growing in its physical dimensions, eventually it approximates the dimensions of the earth at which time it will perforce be a steady state, whether it wants to or not. And so we would be much better off to adapt to this basic plan of steady state, non-growth in physical dimensions, at an optimal level rather than at the maximum level, because at the maximum level, the costs are going to be much greater than the benefits, and we will suffer a lot. So that's my basic perspective. And as for the George's position, I've been very much, uh, you know, my first course in economics was history of thought. And I was very impressed by Henry George. And um, as you probably know, history of thought is no longer taught in economics uh, faculty. Uh, we already know everything. So why discover that why talk about the errors of the past? That seems to be the attitude. Uh, but I would, uh, I would suggest a kind of generalization of Henry George, which I think has already been made by others. And uh, we tax um, 
I mean, let's stop taxing value added. Value added is something we want more of. Value added is, is added by labor and by capital. Stop taxing that or reduce taxations on value added and make it up by taxing that to which value is added, namely the natural resource flow through the land, uh, the entropic flow of resources, energy and matter, that's what's ultimately scarce. We need to increase, increase the productivity of that. And, you know, in terms of, of, of fairness and equity, it's something that uh, nobody produced. Uh, the returns to it are largely rents, just like spatial rents. On, on, uh, so there's all sorts of good reasons for shifting the tax base away, gradually away from labor and capital and onto the natural resource flow. Uh, so in that sense, I would, I would say, well, I'm, I really am in uh, sort of a Georgist, it seems to me, in that way. All right, let me, uh, let me take another one of your, your observations on, on managing the environment uh, uh, to make the case to go steady state. Uh, you have a very compelling argument against free trade. Now, now Henry George is a, is a free trader and uh, I, I don't happen to be a free trader because there is no Georgia system and without a Georgia system, free trade becomes an absurdity. But you make a point that's even larger than that. You're basically saying that free trade is, is trashing, forget the comparative advantage on product A, product B, but you're taking apart civilizations, societies, and nations by doing this. And in so doing it, you're breaking down regional government, which which would be available to perhaps legislate environmental uh, solutions if they could. Yes. Um, well, I think that's true. I think free trade very easily gets generalized into globalization. So you talk about free exchange of goods and services across national boundaries. And then the next step, we say, well, free capital mobility across national boundaries. And then the third step, we say, well, free migration across national boundaries. Well, if those three things uh, cross national boundaries in a deregulated way, freely, then you've pretty well disintegrated the national unit. The, the borders don't make any difference. There are no boundaries and there's no nation. And people don't like boundaries. You know, you hear nice uh, sentimental songs about a world with no borders. Well, that's very fine, except a world with no borders has no community. And a world with no community has no, no basis for policy. So I think uh, that we really must, uh, while I certainly uh, know that it's hard to make a case in favor of nationalism after two world wars, uh, nevertheless, the idea that you can just suddenly leap to a, a global community seems to me to be uh, extremely naive. I'll, I'll, I'll pick up on Mark Blythe's, uh, really an extension of Pogliani, uh, the argument of embeddedness versus a uh, freestanding market economy which kind of hangs out there and depends on its own internal logic to keep it together. Whereas a Pogliani and a Blythe would argue, you can't disembed an economy, you can't take it out of its, uh, probably its regional homes and everything, and, and essentially have a good result long-term that the market itself 
uh, disconnected from, from society ends up in an explosive way, much like we've seen in 2008 and, and today. Yes, well, I guess this is being played out uh, right now in Europe uh, with uh, the uh, conflicts between, uh, among the, the European nations, particularly Greece. Um, my own view is that, I, I mean, I understand the historical context of working for peace and trying to keep Germany and France from going to war again and, and all of that and respect those reasons. Nevertheless, it seems to me that a European uh, common currency, the euro, is a little bit like, you know, taking a, a group of dogs which occasionally growl at each other but live basically peacefully and tying their tails all together. Uh, they're not going to live in peace in that way. When one moves, it's going to hurt the others. and they're, they're So this idea of a common currency seemed to me to, to have enormous costs uh, from the community point of view of each nation and relatively few benefits. I just don't really see the, the great benefit of a common currency uh, for, uh, for Europe. So in that sense, I, um, I think tying all the tails together, you're sort of trying to make uh, uh, Germans into Finns and Greeks and Greeks uh, into, into, uh, uh, into uh, Germans. So, and I don't think that's either necessary or a good idea. So, in a way, I'm I'm a outlier on that. And I'll just comment that it seems to me, I don't I may uh, may not be totally up on the history, but it seems to me that every time there's been anything like a plebiscite uh, in Europe regarding issues of the common market, it's been defeated. People don't want it, and yet it's being pushed on them from above by an elite. And I think that's what's wrong with it and what's wrong with a lot of things in the U.S. as well. Well, let me argue here. Uh, I don't want to get conspiratorial here because, you know, elites have been with us for thousands of years. It's, a, it's kind of a spontaneous eruption of able people who get together and in the Smithian way conspire to uh, do everybody else in. So it's almost a you know, spontaneous eruption of... Uh, of uh, abilities. But in this particular case, this the elite neoliberal project, uh, along with austerity, has the characteristics of taking care of a certain percentage of the population and basically slowing down the access to wealth of the greater majority of the population on the earth. And you could argue that maybe that's a felt sense on elites part that they're slowing down environmental degradation, they're living okay, but they're not going to take six, you know, they're not going to take five and a half billion uh, earthlings with them. Their lives are in one or two generations and uh, they're good. And um, now I don't know if that's a felt or an instinctive need for this, but it seems that the, that the austerity programs, as opposed to the ex expansion programs, have, have kind of a, a feel to them of keeping everybody in place. It's like a, like a straitjacket feudalism. Yeah, they, they think they're in a good place, and perhaps for 50 or 100 years, they may well be in a uh, relatively good place compared to other people. But even, even a relatively good place in a, uh, in a world in which the, which the climate is, is turned upside down and which you have riots and, 
and rebellions and, and so forth is going to be a, a difficult place even for the elite, even the most deserving elites uh, are, are going to have a, a hard time with that. Um, and I think the, um, you know, in a way, I, um, why do they think they're in such good shape? Why do, why do they, well, the, most of these people are in, involved in finance in some way or another. And they see the world through the lens of money. Well, I would argue that essentially the, the finance and the mindset of these people are pretty much path determined by now. And they wouldn't know how to unwind this structure, even if individually, consciously, they understand that it's a rocket going to uh, nowhere. They, the the, the, the uh, argument would be to themselves would be, well, it's the best for all of us, but I'm doing pretty good, and uh, I'm not going to rock the boat. And I think you're, you're fighting structures that robust, that powerful, and they feel pretty good in, while, you, while you're doing it. But going away from that, an argument against that, I wanted to take what I felt was a powerful calculation and estimate that you made in your, your book, Beyond Growth, that the rates of... Uh, uh, resource depletion are excessive and that technology compounding the way it is, you know, it's only 150 years or so that the Industrial Revolution and carbon fuels rocketed us into a, into a different ball game. You know, the human history remembers 10,000 years of essentially no growth and now we've got this rocket ship that exponentially is really pushing on to the environment. And you made the calculation, I think, that if we took the current GNP worldwide and we doubled it, and, uh, and, and doubled the population. In effect, created two worlds within the confines of this limited sphere that essentially the game would be up. Uh, the, the other thing that's insane about it, just projecting GDP by just its physical content makes it insane, but it's even more insane if you realize that GDP, as we calculate it, is a conflation of both costs and benefits. It includes a lot of real benefits for sure, but it also includes costs, uh, regrettably necessary expenditures as the national income accountants term them. Uh, the depletion of natural capital. Uh, so that, and much of these, the, the, uh, for example, the cleanup costs of pollution are entered positively in GDP, whereas there's no offsetting negative entry for actual pollution itself. Well, you're, a friend of yours, apparently, uh, you had the discussion which cracked me up. Uh, I guess you were at the World Bank when you try to get that discussion about calculating economic costs as part of a, a GNP calculation. And I think uh, Larry Summers had said, well, that's an that's really not the way to look at uh, this. Now, Larry is always at the forefront of the latest economic fad. He was a he he became a neoliberal, and now he's uh, he's recanted and uh, he's discovered that doesn't work, and now he's uh, he's kind of a left Keynesian again. But it's certainly he's, he's not an environmentalist yet. Well, you know, I. Who knows? I, I sometimes have this vision in the future that uh, some economists like Summers, perhaps, will um, 
as a result of some mathematical calculation that he did himself, he'll suddenly come to a realization and say, oh, growth can't go, go on forever and present it as if this were an original uh, discovery and get another Nobel Prize for it. All right. Let me just uh, digress a little from that, talking about growth. Given the structure and the claims that are extant in the world economy today that need to be satisfied by interest payments, uh, growth, the, the stoppage of growth would, of course, make all of the claims on the economy valueless so that you'd have just this tremendous upheaval of the wealthiest people in the world, basically their wealth be, become shattered. So there's no incentive for people who hold claims on wealth to, to encourage a no growth economy, which is essentially the way it has to go. No growth uh, is, is going to uh, do severe damage to the claims on the economy as it now now exists. So uh, I don't know if you want well, to there, comment on that. There are claims on the economy as it now exists. In other words, the existing wealth is all claimed. And that and existing things exist. And the wealth claims on that will still exist. What's not going to exist anymore are, is the claims on future growth, which is debt. And so we've been uh, multiplying claims on future growth at an enormous rate, and that's debt. So, that, so there's a huge debt overhang way over and above the actual physical wealth of the economy. So I think the, uh, what's going to collapse is the debt overhang. Okay, well, of course, the debt, the debt on current existing wealth has nominally increased phenomenally because of the bidding up of all, of all resources. Uh, and so that, you know, you've got a conflation of both the future and the current. But uh, assuming that that uh, resolves in an explosion, let's talk about uh, GNP accounting. Do you think that that is a, other than taxing as we advocate on, on natural resources, etc., the GNP accounting where you're forced rigorously to restate uh, GNP with the bads fully accounted for, structurally, what do you think that that might do uh, to ameliorate this problem that we're coming up against. Yeah, I, I think that's a good idea, and I would push in that direction. And John Cobb and I, and Clifford Cobb, who is incidentally a Georgist, had uh, had attempt had developed the index of sustainable economic welfare, in which we tried to separate out uh, costs and benefits and give some kind of uh, implicit shadow pricing valuation to the costs and, and then balance them against the benefits. That was, I think, sufficient to show that uh, we were being badly misled by GDP accounting. Um, and um, whether or not we could correct national accounts to the extent that we could really measure an optimum uh, is, in my mind, a little bit questionable. I, I, when you mentioned shadow pricing, I mean, and that's what we we sort of are involved in in that. But I think this um, the shadow pricing is the attempt by economists to put a monetary value on non-market environmental assets equivalent to what their value would be if they were traded in a competitive market. That's very hypothetical. 
and they really don't know what they're doing in most cases. And they resort to really crazy uh, things like contingent valuation and, and stuff like that. Let's say we bypassed shadow pricing and went directly to engineering estimation. But what, what I would suggest is taking a different approach. Instead of trying to calculate the right price and, and then expecting the right quantities to result through the market, I would start with an ecological approach and try to come up with the right quantities, which are ecologically sustainable, and impose those by quotas, and then let, let the market calculate the corresponding price at which they would exchange. Well, why not put taxes on those then? Well, sure, I, I'm all in favor of taxes on, uh, on, as I said before, on the basic resource flow as opposed to uh, the uh, value, uh, labor and capital. However, one way of imposing a tax is through a quantitative limit. You, you, uh, you limit the quantity and then you auction off the right to, uh, to use that quantity and, that, and you capture the rents of the resource in a rather George's fashion. You, you capture the rents by auctioning the limited quantity. So that would then be a, a way of raising the price of the resource and capturing the rents for public purposes. What about a third world, third world countries that can only sell their, their resources? They don't have the offsetting industry or the ability to uh, be self-sustaining unless they sell off their patrimony. And, uh, and of course, you know, a first world country is not a problem for them. Someone else is suffering. Yeah, this, this has been the, uh, a long debate in economic development circles and theory, you know, do you have um, what export-led development or import substitution development? And I have been very much in favor of import substitution development for developing countries. That's the way the United States developed and, and the other countries under tariff protection was import substitution. And, uh, and that, I think, worked fairly well. Well, then the Treasury Department, American Treasury Department would argue with you here, I think. They would say, look, uh, we had uh, export-led uh, national development in, in tariffs in England when it started, in the United States in the 1800s to 1870 when it started, Germany from 1870 to World War I when it started, and that it's a proven in Japan now and Korea now and and so forth, uh, with us being the recipient of the exports. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think that international trade is, uh, is very much overemphasized, that uh, it ought to be sort of the icing on the cake and not the cake itself. Domestic production for domestic consumption should be what is basic. And then you trade for things that you uh, that are that are too difficult to. I mean, there's no. It, it doesn't make any sense for the United States to export Danish butter cookies to Denmark, and for Denmark to export Danish butter cookies to the United States. You know, let's they cross each other over the Atlantic somewhere. You spend a whole lot of fossil fuels, and you get zero 
uh, you know, increase in, in welfare from this. Well, of course, the argument would, would then be that uh, these smaller countries like Denmark would not have enough of an industry to carry a balanced development to fill the needs of their of their uh, population. So you always have to go to a regional block type country. Okay, there, there is such a thing as an, as an optimal size of, an, of a nation where you can have, where you can produce most goods, um, you know, without, um, um, but I mean, take a, even a small country like Uruguay, where I spent some time. Uh, you know, you, you look at, well, you'd say Uruguay has to trade for everything. Trade, trade is the most important thing for Uruguay. It's a small country. Well, okay, look at some of the costs. Uh, if you're an Uruguayan and you uh, your, your comparative advantage options are either you're going to be a shepherd or a cowboy, one or the other, you know, a, a pastor or a vaquero, and that's it. If you want to play in a symphony orchestra, uh, forget it. You'll have to immigrate. Or if you want to uh, be an airline pilot, you'll have to immigrate. Well, actually, Uruguay said, no, we're going to have a symphony orchestra. And so they have a symphony orchestra. It's not as good as the symphonies they could import. And they're going to have a national airline company. Uh, and so some are going to be pilots. And maybe it's not as great a, a company as some of the, some of the others, but you know they can do a whole lot of things on their own, and it um, without just surrendering their their uh, national identity. But we could also argue technology would would bulk up these little countries to enable them to do more with with less. But of course, technology then becomes impinging upon the overall global system, so that's not really a way way out for little countries either. So we have a situation I think that you've described accurately. Humanity is going to bounce up against some impassable limits because this is a closed system, any way you cut it. And we cannot create man-made capital to replace nature. That is clear. Well, I yeah. One thing that I'm very glad that you said that you can't uh, just substitute uh, man-made capital for natural capital, for natural resources. And yet, this is the answer of the neoclassical economists. You look at neoclassical production functions uh, the, of the Cobb-Douglas type, you know, multiplicative, and what do they consist of? Well, they consist of labor and capital. They leave out resources altogether, So, but now once in a while, under criticism, they'll bring in resources. So resources are considered totally substitutable by man-made capital, when in fact there is a relation of complementarity, not substitutability. There's a relation of limiting factor. What used to be the limiting factor in production was labor and capital. How many fish can you catch? Depends on how many fishermen and how many fishing boats. Not anymore. How many fish you catch now depends on the natural capital of the fish population in the sea. So the limiting factor has changed. It's no longer labor and capital, it's remaining natural capital. And economists have not recognized that. I mean, they, they've avoided it in several ways. Now, anyone who reads your book, who's got half a brain, can get this concept. I mean, this is not, 
And I'm sure your students get this concept. Yeah. I mean, neoclassical economists are not stupid. And uh, I mean, they're very good mathematicians, if nothing else. You know, sometimes I feel like a complete fraud. You know, I say, but I, everything I'm saying is just obvious common sense, or it, it follows immediately from the laws of thermodynamics, which are, which are no secret. Uh, so what's going on here? Why, why, well, it's just that over a long period of time, a lot of very important economists, it seems this is my, you know, this is my self-serving explanation. A lot of very important economists have been very wrong about a very important question regarding growth for a very long time. And it's pretty hard to admit that because a whole lot is going to have to be rewritten. And they don't seem to be willing to face up to it. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of material and intellectual vested interests in the current model of growth. I mean, you've alluded already to the huge financial consequences of, of writing down growth. And there are intellectual consequences for, for economists and others as well. So um, that's, I'd like to have a better answer than that, but that's where I am now. Herb, I think we're gonna cut this interview, although I hate to do this because I think you're a lifeline to a lot of what has to happen. And I hope you never get discouraged about what you're doing. I, I really hope, I hope your students understand uh, what you're supplying them. And I hope the world reads your books and understands. I, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm trained as both a Marxist and a neoclassical economist. And I, I felt that uh, when I read you, uh, I, the truth had somewhat dawned. Although I'm a Georgist, it's true, and I kind of get the, the general idea. Uh, you've made it compelling. And I think people should, should follow what you have to say. And the more you can sharpen the estimates of when the, when the crisis will really come. And the more you, you and your associates can sharpen that up, the better for all of us, because I think it's gonna take a, 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 an impending awareness of just how close run this thing is becoming from a, from a human standpoint. But anyway, thanks for, for joining us, it was terrific. Well, thank you, I'll keep trying and I hope you do too. Uh, thanks again. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.